Good morning. It's nice and warm in here. Glad to see you all here today in the house of the Lord. Today we're starting a new series from the book of Esther. And uh, I love stories, as some of you might know. And I love the stories in the Word of God because they beautifully illustrate these timeless and eternal truths found in God's Word. And it's such a beautiful thing that we can look back into the Old Testament to see some of the wonderful things that are illustrated in the New Testament. And so as we start this journey in the book of Esther, we're going to be, this is the first in five parts, um, and we're going to study this story because it's filled with intrigue, anticipation, it's filled with suspense, action, if you like that, courage, celebration, so many amazing things you can find in, the, in this book of, of Esther. But what we want to really see is the eternal and timeless truths found in the Word of God throughout all of Scripture. And we can see the themes of redemption, of salvation, of protection, love, mercy, judgment, um, victory. So many of these things we can see all throughout the book of Esther. And we see in this ancient story God's providence for his people. Now, in your bulletin today, you would see uh, a handout like this. I'm going to ask you ahead of time, how many people did your homework from last Sunday? The homework was, read Esther chapters 1 and 2. Okay, so I'm giving you homework every week now. All right? So in this, in this handout here, you can see, so of course, today we're going to look at Esther chapters 1 and 2. Next week, we're going to look at chapter 3. The week after, chapter 4, starting you off slow. Then... 5 to 7, and then 8 to 10. So it's impossible for us to go through every single little detail of this book, and there's so much to cover. So um, instead of us summarizing every single little thing, if you could read those chapters before you come to church on Sunday, that would be wonderful. So that way we could just get right into the meat and potatoes, right, of what the book is talking about. Um, We're going to see the lure of the world. We're going to see a fight between good and evil. We're going to see the boldness of a queen, the triumph of sovereign grace, and of a sovereign God who reigns over the affairs of men. So let's pray today. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, for speaking to us this morning. Father, as we look into this beautiful book of Esther, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would encourage our hearts in you, Lord God. Thank you, Lord God, for, Lord, how you've interwoven your heart into these beautiful stories, Lord God. And we can learn a little bit about you, Lord, through this book. And so we pray that you touch our hearts this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So this story takes place around the 5th century BC during the reign of a person by the name of Ahasuerus or Xerxes, okay, who was the king of Persia. And the setting of this story is in Susa, which was the capital uh, of his kingdom, which spanned many, many provinces, a huge amount of land, okay? And just as a quick summary, okay, I know maybe some people didn't do your homework, so I'm going to give you a quick summary of chapters one and two, okay? So as a quick summary of chapters one and two, at the beginning of chapter one, the king gives a great 
big feast, a grand banquet. Now, you'll see throughout this, as we progress through this book, you'll see that there's a lot of banquets, okay, throughout this book. So the king gives a big banquet that lasts for 180 days or six months. Can you believe that? Wouldn't you like to attend a banquet like that that lasts for 180 days, right? He wanted to display his wealth, his splendor, and his glory, right? Um, And then after that banquet, he had another banquet for seven more days for the people at, uh, in Susa, in the palace, okay? And so in chapter one, we read of the king's extravagance. We read of the king's riches. He wanted to be portrayed as a great man that had a lot of wealth and that had a lot of riches. And we see about a queen as well, Queen Vashti, and she also gave a banquet for the women, And what happened is during the king's banquet, he called for the queen, for Queen Vashti to come because she was a beautiful queen and he wanted to show off her beauty to everyone else in his banquet. But Queen Vashti did not want to come, right? And so this was a great offense to the king and to all the men. And so Queen Vashti was removed from being queen. Now the king needed a new queen, Right? And so a command went out throughout the whole land, throughout all of the provinces. A huge command went out to bring all the beautiful young women into the harem, into the citadel at Susa. And that one woman would be chosen, right? The woman that would please the king would be chosen to be the new queen. Now, some people think that maybe there could have been a thousand women that came at this time. We don't know. But it was a lot. And out of all of those women that came, one of them was a woman by the name of Esther. And she was a Jew. She was an orphan. And she was brought up by her cousin, her older cousin named Mordecai, who's another character in this story. Okay? Now, the Bible says of Esther that she had a lovely figure and she was beautiful. She was put under the care of a a man named Haggai, who was the king's eunuch, and he would take care of all the women. And Esther, the Bible says, found favor in the eyes of Haggai. And so she was moved by Haggai to the very best place in the harem. She was given special food. She was given beauty treatments. And she kept her nationality that she was a Jew very secret. Because Mordecai, her older cousin, told her, don't say anything about your nationality. And in preparation for that one night that she had with the king, she asked for nothing but what Haggai had recommended for her. And she spent that one night with the king, and the king was pleased with her and was attracted to her, and she won the king's favor and approval, and she became the queen. And what happened after that? Another banquet, right? You'll see this all throughout this, right? There's a lot of eating that goes on, okay, throughout this book, and maybe we'll look at that a little bit at the end when we talk about the celebration in the last part of this series, right? And so there's another banquet in Esther's honor, and it's called Esther's Banquet. And that takes us to chapter 2 and verse 18, and that's where we're going to stop today. So we're just going to cover chapter 1 and up to chapter 2 and verse 18. Next week, we'll start from chapter 2 and verse 19 and go to the end of chapter 3. Now, this story is about the Jews living in a society that did not share their beliefs, did not share their values, and did not share their morals. In a very similar way, today, we are living in a society that's opposite to what our beliefs and our morals and values are as Christians. There's a stark contrast between the society of today 
and what the word of God teaches. How do we live in such an environment? Do we live apart like monks and say, I don't want to have anything to do with these people? Or do we compromise and do everything that they say? Do we stand in opposition to everything and be critical and criticize every little thing that goes on? Or do we shine a light in dark situations? Hopefully, as we travel through this book, we will learn a little bit about how we can uh, engage society. How we can live in, in a world whose culture and whose values and whose morals don't align with what Scripture teaches us. Now, there's one very interesting thing in this book if you started to read it, or if you've read it already before, that the name of God is not mentioned at all in this book. The name of God, you won't find anywhere in this book. You'll hardly find even references to God. You'll hardly find even references to spiritual things. There's one part in the book that talks about fasting, but it just says fasting. It doesn't say fasting and prayer. It just says fasting. And so you don't find the name of God in this book. And sometimes in our lives, when we think that God is not working, when God is not answering prayer, that God is not manifesting himself, don't lose hope. Because as we'll see in this book, God is working and his fingerprints are everywhere. I've I've titled the, the whole series here, the book of Esther, Fingerprints of the Unseen God. Because God is not seen in this book. The name of God is not seen in in this book. But his fingerprints are everywhere. His hand is everywhere. He's moving and he's working. And I believe the name of God is not mentioned in this book to bring about this beautiful truth that although God is not seen outwardly or overtly evident in this book, he is still watching over his people He is still caring for his people. He is still working on their behalf. If you look at some of the passages in the Bible, in the time of crisis, in the time of problem, in a time of difficulty, you see God working in amazing ways. You see uh, in the Old Testament, beautiful stories of Elijah, right? He calls down fire from heaven to prove that God is the God of Israel, You see uh, the story about the three Hebrew boys in the book of Daniel as they are thrown into a fiery furnace and another man is there walking in their midst and protecting them. You see when God sends the, the ten plagues to Egypt that it's used to deliver Israel from the land of Egypt. You see so many times in so many stories in the Bible, you see these times of crisis, God stretches forth his hand and works supernaturally and does a miracle, does a sign, does a wonder and does amazing things. And then we look at that and what do we say? There's God. But can we look at the book of Esther and see the hand of God that is not so overtly obvious? Can we see God working in this beautiful book? We see when Jesus walked on the face of this earth, he did these miracles, he did these signs and wonders, and what do we see? There's God. But when we look at the book of Esther and you don't see the name of God mentioned, can you still say, there's God. He's working. When we look at our lives, we might not be seeing something supernatural, something amazing, something wonderful, But we can see in little ways. We can see in the way that God moves us and uses us. There's God. There's God. There's God. And this is the contrast between the book of Esther and all the other books in the Bible. 
How you see in other books of the Bible the name of God and God working supernaturally and wonderfully. And we need to see that. But here, when the name of God is not mentioned, we can still see deliverance. Not by a supernatural work, but God using his people to be bold and to take a step of faith to fulfill his will. We see a string of coincidences, we'll say. But it's really God who's working. It's interesting because we can't get to it right now, but at, at one point in the story, we see about, about the king. He can't sleep at night, and so he gets up in the middle of the night, and he decides to read a, a scroll. And out of all the scrolls that he reads, he reads this one particular story about a man named Mordecai. And because of that, he wants to honor Mordecai. And it works out so perfectly that the next day, when Mordecai's enemy is out there to get him, the king remembers the story and wants to honor Mordecai. It's not a coincidence. It's the hand of God working and moving. And so the main theme in this, in this book is the sovereign God working providentially through the actions circumstances and decisions of humanity, both good and bad, both good and evil, to fulfill his divine purpose and plan in our lives. One of those main purposes is to protect his people and to fulfill his word, fulfill his promises towards Israel. And we'll look back at this later on as we go through the series, maybe when we get near the end, we'll look back and see some of these providential circumstances, these coincidences that happen throughout the word of God. When we see God delivering uh, Israel from Egypt, delivering Daniel from the lion's den, uh, performing miracles in the Old Testament, it's easy for us to say, there's God in the story. There's God working. But can we see God in the book of Esther when he's not so apparent? Can we see God working in a beautiful way? There are times when instead of God working a miracle, instead of God doing something supernatural, he works through the mundane. Instead of God doing something amazing and wonderful, he uses the very natural, unmiraculous circumstances of our life to bring about his purpose and plan. He's everywhere. He's in every decision. He's in every circumstance. God is never absent God is always working behind the scenes. Many times we want to see a God that, that works miracles, that does something miraculous. But can we trust in a God that works in the mundane, that works in the ordinary situations of our lives to bring about his beautiful purpose and plan? Now, in chapter 1, we see this great feast. And in chapter 2, we basically see a beauty pageant, Right? But what I want to focus on in this message is the life of Esther and some of the beautiful truths that we learn from her. Now, as I mentioned before, Esther was an orphan and she was raised by her older cousin, Mordecai. Now, when Esther was taken into the palace, there was basically four things that could happen to her. Number one, after she went into the king and spent her one night with the king, she, could be, she would be a concubine. And if the king didn't like her, she would be a concubine for the rest of her life, and she would be basically delegated to perpetual widowhood, right? She couldn't leave and get married to somebody else, right? She, if the king didn't delight in her, she was just a concubine that she would never see the king ever again. And that was 
her life. She couldn't leave. She couldn't get married to anyone else. And some, some of these girls would have been very young. The second thing that could have happened was if the king liked her, she could still be a concubine and the king would call her every now and then to see her. The third thing that could happen if the king really liked her is that she could become one of his select few wives. And then her children would be part of the royal lineage. But if the king greatly delighted in her, then she would become the number one queen. And that's what happened to Esther. That the king greatly delighted in her and she became the the queen. Now I've titled this message, The Lure of the World. Because in so many different ways in chapters 1 and 2, we see the world attracting us. We see the world pulling us in. We see the world trying to draw us into what is attractive. The world concentrates on the outward appearance, whereas the Bible says that God looks at something different. You know, in the Old Testament, when Samuel the prophet went to anoint a king, and he was looking for the king that God had chosen, he came to David's house. And when he saw David's older brother, he looked at David's older brother and he said, wow, this is the guy, this must be the next king. And what did God say? God said in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. You know, we get drawn in by the world when we focus on the outward appearance. If you look at chapters one and two, what happened in these chapters? The king wanted to flaunt his wealth and power by putting on a feast that lasted for six months. He brought out all his riches, his gold, his silver, his pearls. He wanted to show to everyone what a big man he is, what a rich man he is, what a powerful man he is. The people could drink without restriction. He wanted to flaunt the beauty of his wife, the queen. Not her character, but how beautiful she was on the outside. And when he was publicly humiliated when she would not come, then he had to take public action because he was humiliated. And the search for the new queen was all about external beauty. They wanted a beautiful girl. They gave them 12 months of beauty treatments on top of that. I don't know how many women here you would like that. 12 months of beauty treatment. And the queen was selected. How? By how much she pleased the king. And sadly, Esther fell for it all. Esther fell for it all. She sold herself completely to the world. She sold herself completely to follow the ways of the world. She sold herself completely to compromise in the way the world was working. Matthew chapter four, verses eight to 10. This was a time when Jesus was tempted by the devil and after a couple of temptations, finally the last temptation that the devil presented before Jesus. It says here again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said. If you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus was tempted here with the riches of the world, with the kingdoms of this world, with all that the world had to offer. 
This was the last temptation of Jesus. But he didn't bow the knee. If you contrast the actions of Esther and Mordecai with that of Daniel and his friends in the book of Daniel, you'll see two totally different stories. You'll see two starkly different outcomes. And these were, the book of Esther and the book of Daniel, they happen around the same time. The same time that Israel was in captivity. And Daniel and his friends told everybody, we are Jews. We're not going to defile ourselves with what the king has to give us. We're not going to bow down our knees to their idols. We're not going to serve their gods. We're not going to do things like everyone else is doing. We're going to stand apart because we are the chosen people of God. Daniel was willing to go to the lion's den and die by lions in order to stay faithful to his God in prayer. Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were willing to be thrown into a furnace of fire because they did not want to bow the knee to that idol. They didn't want to defile themselves even with what was eaten at the king's table. But what did Esther do? She said, give me all of it. I'll eat whatever they have. I'll drink whatever they have. Hey, guy, whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do it. Give me whatever beauty treatments I can get. I am going to live just like you're telling me to live because I want to have that position as queen. Give me everything that I could get. Oh, and I'm not telling anybody that I'm a Jew either. I'm not telling anybody that I'm part of God's chosen people. Do we live like that in the world? Do we sell ourselves completely to what the world has and what the world offers? Or do we stand up and say, I'm a Christian. This is what I stand for. Daniel 3 and verse 17 and 18. These three Hebrew boys, when they were getting ready to be thrown into the fire... And, and, and the king, they wouldn't bow the knee to the idol that was set up. And they told the king, they said, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your, from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty, that we will not serve your gods, nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. But what does Esther do? She sleeps with a man out of wedlock. She marries a man that is not an Israelite and an unbeliever. Could it get worse? Esther is failing here and failing miserably. What are the values, systems, and morals of the world in contrast to the values, systems, and morals of the kingdom of God? We're all drawn to the world to think like them, to act like them. But the Lord is looking for us to take a stand and Esther fails miserably. Thank God we're only in chapters one and two. Timothy Keller asks a question. Are you a concubine to the world system? Have you sold yourself to the culture of the world? First John chapter 5, verse 15 and 17, some familiar verses. It says here, do not love the world nor anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Dear people of God, dear friends, what are our priorities in life? How do we make our decisions in life? How do we choose where we live? 
What job we take? Who do we marry? How we live? Is that defined by the world? Or is that defined by God? So many times our identity is based on how we look. What type of job we have. How much wealth we possess. Who we know and who knows us. So many times our life, our identity is based on all of these external things that the world holds very highly, that the world esteems. And we lose our identity in Christ. Throughout the scriptures, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Gospels, in the letters of the Apostles, the character of those in the kingdom of God is clearly spelt out. The question is, are we going to live by those principles? Are we like the king, desiring to show off to others our status, our wealth, our position? Do we seek affirmation of others at any cost? Are we like Esther, willing to compromise to obtain that affirmation? Now we'll go through some of this in a little bit more detail in our life groups this week as we try to answer some of these questions. Well, my question to you this morning Are we compromising? Are we compromising? Luke 16, verse 14 and 15 says, the Pharisees, here Jesus was teaching, and the Pharisees were coming against Jesus because of his teaching. And it says, the Pharisees who loved money. The Pharisees, they loved the greetings in the marketplace. They loved people to call them rabbi. They made these long prayers so that people would look up to them, so that they would be highly esteemed in the sight of others. These Pharisees were people that when they would walk by, they oh, those are the Pharisees. They loved that praise. They loved that exaltation. They loved others to look at them and say, oh, look at this Pharisee. But here it says, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is what? detestable in God's sight. Here we have the values and the systems and the ways of the world and here we have the values and the systems and the ways of God and the ways of the kingdom of God, the, cult, the, the culture and character of God's kingdom. And many times they're in stark contrast and they clash one against another and we're torn in between and we're drawn to the ways of the world and Christ is pulling us towards him. And we have to make decisions every day How do we live? What do we say? What jobs we take? What we hold valuable in our eyes? What are our priorities? And sadly, in this story, Esther fails miserably. Now, the feminists would say, Esther, how could you do this thing? How could you compromise in such a way? And Esther does everything that Haggai said. More than the other girls, she completely sells herself out to the world. She obtains her status and her position by following the ways of the world, totally opposite to what Daniel and his friends did in the book of Daniel. Esther 2 and verse 9, it says here, she pleased him, speaking of Haggai, and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants to the very best place in the harem. She was given very special treatment. Verse, Verse 15 says, 
When the turn came for Esther to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. She just said, Haggai, tell me what to do. Give me what you need. I will obey you completely. I will follow exactly what you tell me to do. Do we compromise like that? Esther gave up everything to please the world. She hid her own identity that she was a Jew. Dear people of God, dear friends, is this how we live in this world? God has said that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God has called us to shine a light in the midst of darkness. James 4 and verse 4, these are very hard verses, I know. It says here, James says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Yes, we are guilty like Esther. Yes, we compromise like her. Yes, we spend one night with the king. But that's what makes the story of Esther and this book so beautiful. Because we see the hand of God and the theme of redemption woven throughout this book. That's what, I know I've made Esther to be really terrible, right? I know that. That was my point. But that's what makes God's work and God's hand all the more marvelous and special. Because in such low place that Esther has sung to, we still see how God redeems us. How God uses that situation that Esther was in to bring about his marvelous purpose. Now, I can't get into all of that because that's for another message. But if you know a little bit of the book of Esther, if you want to read ahead, you can read ahead a little bit. It's okay. But if you understand what happens later on, you see how God uses Esther's terrible situation to bring about something beautiful and something good. And this is why I love the story of Esther. Because you see these marvelous, eternal, timeless truths of the word of God. These truths of redemption and salvation and restoration. And how God marvelously works all things together for good. Even though Esther has failed and even though Esther has done miserably and maybe we're like her and we can relate to her so much today, I want to tell you today that there is hope in Christ. I want to tell you today that there's redemption in Jesus. I want to tell you today that the story is not over yet. Got to come back next week. And the week after. Because in Romans 8 verse 28, a beautiful truth that says, And we know that all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This could not be seen more clearly, more beautifully, more, more powerfully in the story of Esther. How God uses this bad situation that Esther is in for good. How God uses that situation that Esther is in to accomplish his divine purpose by saving the Jewish nation. Spoilers, right? God is in control. Even when we mess up, God can make a message out of our mess. God is in control, protecting his people, even when he's not obviously or overtly seen in the story. He's sovereign, and he will fulfill his plan and purpose for us. 
And we see that in the life of Esther. Now, I can't get into all the details. There'll be another message to see how God works it all out for good. But I, don't want, I didn't want to leave you on a low note there, right? Esther messed up, but there's hope at the end of the line. That's the story of Esther. And I tell you, that's my story, and that's all of our stories. Because in our faults and in our failures, God redeems us, and God gives us a second chance. In all of our faults, and all of our failures, in all the ways that we've compromised with the world, in all the ways that we've surrendered to the world, in all the ways that we said, yeah, I'm being drawn to the world, I want that, I want that. In all of these things that we've just messed up miserably, there is still hope in Jesus. In all the ways that we failed, still Christ is supreme. In all the ways that we say, I can't do it anymore, I just run towards the world, still God wants to work everything together for our good and fulfill his plan and purpose in our lives. So what can we learn from this? Very quickly, three things. Number one, when the values of this world clash with the values of the kingdom of God, it's more important to obey God. When the values of this world clash with the values of the kingdom of God, it's more important to obey God. Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, when, when they were preaching about Jesus and the, and, and the religious people, they said, don't do that. Peter said, we must obey God rather than man. Number two, Jesus gave up everything for us and his life of self-sacrifice exemplifies true beauty. Jesus gave up everything for us and his life of self-sacrifice exemplifies true beauty. This is important because at the beginning of this story of Esther, we see that beauty is totally focused on the externals. Beauty is totally focused on the outward. That's what we see in the story of Esther and Esther fails miserably. But later on in the story, we're going to see a beautiful act of self-sacrifice on Esther's part. And that is the revelation of true beauty from what God looks for. And it's totally seen in the life of Jesus. And we see it in a type and shadow in Esther. And so Jesus exemplifies this true beauty because of the life he lived in self-sacrifice. Ephesians 5 and verse 2, walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering. It smells sweet. A sacrifice to God. A sacrifice to God. This is the amazing part of the book of Esther because we see this contrast in chapters 1 and 2 when they're just sold out to the world. And then as we go later on in a couple of other chapters later on, we see this just selfless act by Esther that reveals what true beauty is. And the author of the book, I think, wonderfully portrays this as he talks about this, this, this outward beauty and the vanity in it and the draw of the world and Esther just selling herself out for that. But later on we see as God works and how God redeems and how, how God providentially works in the lives of his people, we see the selfless act of Esther to put herself in the gap and to stand in between her people being wiped out. Wiped out. And it's a beautiful picture of Jesus and what he's done for you and me. It's a beautiful picture of Christ's self-sacrifice for us. And number three, when we unite these things together, number three, until we realize what true beauty is, we will be sold out to the ways of the world. Until we realize what true beauty is, until we realize that beauty is held in this aspect of self-sacrifice that we see here in the book of Esther as we see in the life of Jesus, until we realize that, 
we will fall down time and time again to the ways of the world. Matthew 16, verse 24 and 25. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life, they'll lose it. But whoever loses his life, for me, will find it. Selfless. That's beautiful. Why is Jesus beautiful? He gave up his life. He surrendered. He sacrificed himself for us. That's beautiful. The cross is beautiful. And he calls us to the same. To take up our cross. Follow after him. Live a life of self-sacrifice. Live a life to help others. Surrender ourselves. Lay down our lives for our friends. That's beauty. We'll see that in the book of Esther later on. I'll close with just a story about a lady by the name of Esther. Not the same Esther in the Bible. Her name is Esther Ann Kim. Her Korean name is Ann E. Sok, I believe, if I'm pronouncing it properly. This lady in 1939, when the Japanese were forcing people, uh, when the Japanese were controlling Korea at the time during World War II, they were forcing people to bow down to a shrine to to their sun god. And the punishment for not doing so was imprisonment, torture, and possibly death. It's a true story. Many Christians decided that they could outwardly bow the knee to this shrine as long as in their hearts they inwardly worship Jesus. Esther knew that she could not make such a compromise. And so she decided that she could not live her youthful life for herself. And she declared, Today on this mountain, before the large crowd, I will proclaim that there is no other God but you. When her group reached the shrine, it was at Namsan Mountain, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, in Seoul, Korea. Everyone bowed but her. Her uncertainty and fear vanished and a calmness and peace came into her. She told the Lord, I died today on that mountain. Now it is only you who lives through me. I leave everything in your hands. A life of self-sacrifice. She lived in hiding for some time but knew that it was a matter of time before she'd be caught and imprisoned. So do you know what she did? She prepared herself for imprisonment. She prepared herself by fasting. She prepared herself by memorizing scripture, more than a hundred chapters, and memorizing various hymns so that she could remember them during her time of imprisonment. She tirelessly prayed. She trained to endure harsh conditions by sleeping without a quilt, lived in deep poverty, and also ate rotten produce, like fruits and vegetables, because she figured that's what she would get in prison. She felt God calling her to come out of hiding and boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel, and so she did that. And she spent the next six years in prison, but displayed amazing love for her persecutors and fellow prisoners. She endured such harsh torture and persecution, but refused to deny the name of Jesus. Many came to know the Lord through her through her example. One time in prison, she gave her, 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 
her, she saved up her food for several days for a woman who was filthy and insane and sentenced to death because she had killed her husband. All the other prisoners didn't want to have anything to do with her. They were repulsed by her. But she reached out to this lady. And, and some of the things that she I don't have time to tell you some of the things that she did to help this lady. It, I, I couldn't believe what I was reading. But she prayed relentlessly for her. And that woman died in her right mind knowing Jesus Christ as her Savior with, her, with a hope and a future. When she was released, the story of her imprisonment, the story of her faith, the story of her dedication was put into a book and was a bestseller in Korea, inspiring countless thousands of others to stand strong in their faith. Do you know what the title of that book was? If I Perish. For those of you who know the rest of the book of Esther, those words will be very significant. We'll come back to that later on. But if you want to read more of her story, it's found in that book. It's an autobiography. If I Perish. A modern-day Esther. We must ask ourselves, are we really ready to die? To die daily to ourself? To live for the kingdom of God? To live to fulfill the will of God? To do what God is asking us to do? I don't know what your situation is today, dear friends. Maybe you can relate to Esther of the Bible and her failures and compromise. I want to tell you, don't lose hope. The sovereign God is still working. The sovereign God is still in control. And he accomplishes his purposes and his plans in our lives. In the good and in the bad, he is still working. That's the beauty of this story. In the calm and in the storm, he's still working. And that's the beauty of this story. In the dawn and in the dark, he's still working. And that's the beauty of the story. The song we're going to sing, the chorus goes, In your everlasting arms, all the pieces of my life, from beginning to the end, I can trust you. In your never-failing love, you work everything for good. God, whatever comes my way, I can trust you.